Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to an hour of science here on 3RRR. In the studio with me is Dr. Jen. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. It's good to see you. Yeah, you too. I feel like we often exchange emails, but actually being in the same room <laughs> or the same studio doesn't happen as often as I would like. And it's rare that it's just us. I know. So. Well, if Dr. Ewan's listening. Yeah. What's he up to? Where is he? <laughs> He's up the bush. Oh, yes, he is. I saw um, him tweeting and all sorts of pictures of the outback. Yeah, as and he does. Playing, playing in a swamp and all that sort of stuff. So, no, he's having a lot of fun. Uh, sounds like he's having a good time. Probably better than us. But uh, oh, we've got some. I'm having a great time. <laughs> we've got some amazing guests today, folks. Uh, we've, we've got four guests today. I counted. Which is about as uh, large as we get, well, except when the 20 <laughs> PhDs come in. But four guests is a pretty good run. But we've got our first one in the studio with us already, actually. Dr. Jane Melville is a senior curator of terrestrial vertebrates at the Museum's Victoria Research Institute. Jane, welcome to Triple R. Good morning. Great to be here. It's great to be uh, in the presence of people from the museum. I was talking to your comms person the other day and I said, send us more guests from the museum. We love uh, hearing about the collection. And can, can you tell me just... I don't know if you have this number off the top of your head, but what portion of the collection of the museum is on display for the public, like ballpark? Oh, very small amount, in fact. Yeah. Most of it's um, up in, in the, the collections in the storage. Um, I know from I, – I, I'm a herpetologist. I do mm. reptiles and amphibians. Yep. And I know we've got about 75,000 specimens in our collection, wow. so only a tiny proportion is actually on display. Yeah, so, well, like three on display. <laughs> yeah, but, well, <laughs> a few. Yeah. And so mostly what we have um, stored is the, the history of – of um, uh, Victorian reptiles and amphibians, you know, through time, biodiversity, and it's a research collection for yeah. other scientists to come in and do research on. That, that's wild. How do you make sure it's safe, uh, you know, in terms of like just weather damage, temperature damage, light damage, like how do you ensure the safety of such a big collection? So th there's actually, um, uh, they're stored in very specific uh, conditions, so cool, dry, and it's a full-time job for the collection managers to make sure that, so most of the, the reptiles and amphibians are stored in um, ethanol, mm -hmm. so alcohol in bottles of alcohol. I'm sure everyone's seen the kind of pictures yeah. of museums and lots of bottles <laughs> of things. And um, so it's kind of a full-time job to make sure these 75,000 specimens are all in good condition. So, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Interesting. Now, you work in particular with reptiles and amphibians. Yes. Um, what, what got you into reptiles and amphibians? Uh, I grew up in Tasmania, okay. and um, as a kid, I really, really wanted a pet snake. Okay. But the only snakes in Tasmania, there's three species and they're all venomous. Wow. So um, my mum's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> so when, when I went to university, I'm like, that's what I want to do. I want to study reptiles. So, oh, that's so cool. Yeah. yeah, I wasn't aware of there only being three species in Tasmania and they're all venomous. I'll keep that in mind next time I'm down in Hobart <laughs> or wandering around the marketplace. Um, but a big area of your work has been on the Victorian grassland eelless eel dragons. Now, these were thought... Were they thought extinct completely or just endangered? So, um, 
I, I've been working on uh, the taxonomy of illustrators for almost 20 years now. So taxonomy yeah. is the description and identification of species. And um, so in 2019, the um, grassland deer actually included populations from Canberra, the Manaro, High Plains in New South Wales, Bathurst and Victoria. And I did okay. work on them and showed they are actually four separate species. Wow. The Victorian ones had not been seen since 1969. Oh, that's so, a long time. Yeah, I identified that they were a unique species from using the museum's historical collections. Yep. And so then it was went from being a population that was possibly extinct to a species that was right. possibly extinct. So, yeah. And where did we find these in Victoria prior prior to the 1960s? So that's one of the problems. So we look back to the old records back into the 1800s. All the places they were found were um, the, the swamps and grasslands down around um, uh, Melbourne. So it was um, the mouth of the Yarra, mm-hmm. um, South Melbourne, islands in the Yarra River, Essendon. So there's no grasslands there yeah. These days, yeah. So, and the, the the specimens that were collected in the 1960s, which was the last time they were seen, were down towards um, uh, Little River down near Werribee, yep, down yep. that way. So, um, right. So, yeah. we're quite quite separated. Those uh, sites are all yes. over Melbourne, basically. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. right. So um, they're a grassland specialist, and that's that's where they occurred. And so they've been. Um, uh, their loss has been basically due to the loss of their their habitat due yeah. to Melbourne growing as a city. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, all, all the ones you just mentioned. The only place I could think they'd still want to be would be Little River. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. now, but we've got some good news. Recent, Fantastic news. news. So, yeah. in 2019, I did quite a few kind of interviews and things about. I think it's too early to call this species extinct, and this year. They were located west of Melbourne, and it was, I reckon, one of the best moments in my career. Like, yeah. they had been found. It was so amazing. It was like I did a little happy dance. It was it was amazing. Yeah. So, so, so whereabouts are they? Uh, at the moment, it's secret location oh, due to various okay. yeah, reasons. So, enough. Don't ask, Dr. Shane. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. West um, of Melbourne. I'm west of New, Melbourne. I'm thinking New Yanks. <laughs> <laughs> you can guess all you want, yeah. but West of Melbourne. <laughs> Grasslands, yeah. West of Melbourne. So. Yeah, that's fabulous. And do we have an idea of the population size? Um, I think it's a bit early at the moment um, uh, to know that, but the, the uh, Zoos Victoria has been working on surveying the area and, of course, we've moved into winter now. Mm. So um, they only had kind of a few months to go out and look for them in this area. Um, and so over winter all the, the, the little lizards are inactive, so they've got to basically hold off until um, spring comes again and they can get out there and look again. So, Have, have you yeah. been walking around work with a T-shirt that says, I told you so? <laughs> That'd be okay. <laughs> I think we should get one made for you, Jane. Because yeah. in your position, you know, you could have quite easily, you know, there is so much depressing news when you're a, when you work mm. in conservation biology. It would have been so easy to say, you know, here's another species gone, but you didn't. You said, look, let's let's not jump to any conclusions yet. And then to have this good news story, I mean, it's so rare to have a good news story. You Absolutely. must just be jumping with Absolutely. joy. And and um, so the zoo, Zoo's Victoria has been doing surveys for a number of years as part of their fighting extinction work mm-hmm. and they've been surveying very various grasslands and so for them as well as for me um 
for this species to be found was just just fantastic. <laughs> so, Jane, somewhere I'm sure I read, because there's obviously been a lot of press, which is wonderful, so rare to have a good news story, and I'm sure somewhere in the press I read an article talking about using detection dogs to find them. Is that right, or did I dream that up? I... I that's correct. I've been asked that a few times, but that's Zoo's Victoria. Okay. I, I don't know that much about it, but okay. I, you're right. I think they're, they're, they're doing that as part of the, the kind of survey program. So the Zoo's idea would Victoria. be these are very small lizards. They're well camouflaged. They're quite hard to find. Yes. There's a non-invasive way, as in if we don't have to trap them and handle them to know they're there. So mm. if dogs can do that job, yeah. that would be a good thing, yeah. right? And the other thing we've been uh, with a colleague of mine, Dr Joe Sumner, we, we've been out to the site the secret site, <laughs> and uh, we've taken um, swabs of these lizards live down um, spider burrows. So we've taken swabs of the spider burrows um, to do what's called eDNA, so environmental DNA, to see if we can detect the lizards um, from just taking, like, swabs of the spider so burrows. Because cool. so cool. yeah. you should be able to, right? There should be skin yeah, yeah. cells left if they're Absolutely. going in out of burrows. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. It's interesting to me because this, this brings in... You, into question like where we put our funding and I think you've, you've given a really good example here of where the sort of work you're doing at the museum understanding different species from from the past collections that we have is part yes. one yes. but then being if you actually find that one of these species is still around yes. like we found that that's where Museum Vic, Victoria sort of hands over a bit to um, Zoos Victoria and says yes. okay you guys have been doing some amazing conservation work with the uh, with stick insects with um, all sorts of things from Tasmania you know yep. like um Let's let's see what we can do here. But that's a, that's a whole you know surveying these areas is not a easy thing to do. It takes no. a lot of time and a lot of people power to do that. And you know we have to be putting resources into both sides of that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And, and just um so at the museum we're also running now um a, a genetics program on this species. So we're we're actually doing cell culture work. So we've been mm. growing cells from um um skin samples, so we're growing skin cells and we're actually growing live cells, which means that we can have a ongoing source of genetic material from the species that we um, can store in a liquid nitrogen um, a wildlife biobank that we have at the museum. Right. So it's an ongoing source of DNA. So, Jane, along the, the DNA lines, that's obviously amazing that you're, mm. that you're storing the, the genetic data that way, but I'm also interested, do you have any sense yet of whether this population is big enough to have enough genetic variability to be viable in the long term? Do we know anything about that? Well, that's one of the really... So, um, part of the... So, I was contacted to identify, to formally identify the lizards that had been located, but the first step is to confirm that it was actually the right species. Mm. Now, for the 2000 2019 work, um, taxonomic work, I had, um, uh, our group had sequenced a small fragment of DNA from specimens from the early 1900s. So we had DNA of the actual historical populations. Wow. So then we could do DNA on the ones that were um, found west of Melbourne and confirm genetically that it was um, the Victorian grassland illustration confidently and now what I would like to do is extend the um, the work on the historical samples to look at the genomic diversity uh, in the historical populations and then look at compare that to what we have now to look right. at a has there been a loss in genetic diversity 
over time, so a real decline, and also um, what is existing in the populations now. Yeah, no, that's wild. It, it's there's so much to do there. Like, and this is just one species. That's the yes. thing that blows me away. Like, this is just one species, and you hear about it, and you think there's so much work to be done. Now, before we let you go, Jane, we should mention the future forums are coming up uh, that are run by Museums Victoria. Um, these are on the genetic rescue of our fantastic beasts. Yes. And my understanding is the first one's coming up on Wednesday, the nineteenth of July at seven thirty p.m. It's going to be moderated by the amazing Natasha Mitchell and your colleague Joanna Sumners. And others, Marissa Parrott will be there yes, as well. Yeah, Victoria, Victoria. Yeah, yeah, Sue's Victoria involved. So this is something I, I guess people can have a look um, on the museum's website, and they'll find all the absolutely. details. But it sounds like a good event. Yes, absolutely. And it's getting into it'll get into some more of the detail of what I was just talking about. This kind of cell biology work we're doing for wildlife rescue. So. Yeah, yeah, wild. And I'm, I'm still guilty of not having come to the museum yet to see the oh, dinosaur exhibit. Well, you let us know when you come in and we'll take you up to see some Ooh. of those 75,000 specimens. <laughs> oh, that, yeah, that sounds Pretty great. Cool. I, I remember years ago we had one of the geology guys in and he was telling me there was like three tonnes of rocks stored somewhere. And I'm like, <laughs> you've got this shop front and that's all. And so I campaigned for many years, said m- many terrible things about Museum on Air until they expanded the rock collection. Now there's that amazing exhibit in, in the main area, you know, yes. near the dinosaur exhibit um, that you can walk through, which is just wild. And I'm like, I'm happy to take the other two and a half tons if you don't. <laughs> <laughs> but there's so many things stored that people just don't know. There's this sort of arc of, of treasures yes. that um, must be amazing to play through. So, yeah. Yes. Well, Jane, thanks so much for coming in and talking to us and congratulations on being right. I think that is, uh, that is a, an incredible outcome for, for everyone actually in Australia and around the world to know that these things are still out there and that Absolutely. we can hopefully preserve their, their existence, you know, and not screw it up further. Yeah, absolutely. Bottom line. Uh, Dr. Jane Melville, a senior curator of terrestrial vertebrates at Museums Victoria Research Institute. Good to chat. Thank you. Triple R. In the studio with us now is uh, Dr. Michelle Dunn. Michelle is from the School of Science, Computing and Engineering Technologies at Swinburne University. Michelle, welcome to the studio. Thanks for having me. Now, you're working, you're, you're an engineer. Um, I am. And there's been a recent uh, Women in Engineering Week. Which That's we, right. Which we missed, unfortunately, on the show. But, but um, tell, tell us about that. That was a, a big thing around Yeah. So, we have um, International Day, oh, International Day of Women in Engineering. That'll do. 23rd of June. <laughs> yep. Um, and it's all about promoting women in engineering because... Um, there's not enough of us, yeah. right? Yeah. There just there simply isn't enough women in engineering. Yeah. Um, so we currently sit about ten to ten to fifteen percent oh, of engineers yeah. are actually women, wow, and that, that's low, isn't it? It is low, and it mm. it hasn't really changed mm. since I started my degree. Um, yeah. Why do you think that is? I honestly think it's it's way back in uh, late late primary school. Yeah. You know, girls girls are getting put, being put off science and being put off um, maths. We and could so, spend the whole show on that. We could spend yeah. the whole show on <laughs> Why don't we? Let's yeah. do yeah. it. Well, we don't have a shortage of uh, women from engineering today. Uh, no. With you and one of your colleagues. And, of course, we also have some more coming in from Swinburne University later in the year. And when, we, when we could uh, time them with your comms people. So Fantastic. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't have uh, have you on during that week, but uh, we're trying oh, to make up for it. But we do, <laughs> so, need, we do need more women in engineering because yeah. engineering should, should represent the, the population it should yeah. re- represent the diversity of the of the population it shouldn't be just 
Mm. Yeah, 100%. and and Why maybe not? maybe we'd get some better looking cars and 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 different looking <laughs> engineering outcomes than what we get through this sort of one sort of corridor of ideas that we get from a single population. Well, I mean, um, there there are many examples where men men have designed things and they don't necessarily suit women. Right. So yeah. you know, women have breasts. Yep. Um, and so that doesn't always fit well with seatbelts. Yep. You know, um, and maybe if if women had been involved in that, we would have a different design, which is a bit more comfortable. Mm. Yeah, indeed. Absolutely. Now, speaking of amazing designs, you're working at the moment on this project that is essentially the idea is to get a telescope on the moon. Correct. So, first of all, wh- why do we want to put the telescope on the moon? Um, so, the astronomers are very interested in this thing called the cosmic dark ages. Mm-hmm. So, the cosmic dark ages is a, is a period of time after the Big Bang where um, things were in a state of flux. So, we had, we had atoms, we had um, helium, we had hydrogen, we had a little bit of stuff going on, but we didn't have any stars. So, we just sort of had a big, soupy, foggy, gassy mess. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> Sounds enticing, yeah. doesn't it? You couldn't see squat that thing. You're like, really? You couldn't see through it? Yeah. That's where we all come from. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, astronomers don't really know much about what's happening in that because the um, the, the the wavelengths of the radio uh, signals that are coming from that period of time are actually blocked by the Earth's ionosphere, like part of the atmosphere, and so we can't actually see what's going on there. So, by putting a telescope on the moon, um, we don't have to worry about that. Like yeah. we've, we've, we don't have the, the wavelengths can get to the moon. Um, and on top of that, if we put it on the far side of the moon, so away from where the Earth is. Um, we can't see the Earth, so there's no radio interference coming from the mm. Earth. We're not we're not worried about Earth's at- satellites and Earth's airplanes and Earth's radios and all that stuff. And then for about half of the the month, uh, we can't see the sun either. And yep. so it's a really radio quiet area. It's just like beautiful, peaceful, <laughs> yeah. and and you can just pick up those signals. That's wild. And I commend you for for saying far side of the, the moon, not dark side of the moon, because oh. it's you, you hear this all the time, but it's not dark. It no. goes around the earth and, it, and it's, you know, it's in sunlight a lot of the time, yep. that side of the moon. Exactly. It's just that we can't see it. So yes. it's kind of dark to us, I guess, yeah, is the way to put exactly. it. But, um, but that's the best part about this. It's facing away from us, so our crap doesn't interfere with the project. Exactly. Yeah. Now, uh, well, it sounds easy. Oh, Let's so simple. Let's do it. Let's so do it. simple. Um, but you, know, you and I were talking out in the green room earlier about um, one of the things that people don't think about a lot, which is just the, the fine grain dust which yes. is on the moon. I mean, what does that mean for you in an engineering sense? Oh, <laughs> I'm so worried about I've tri- the dust. I've triggered her. <laughs> so worried about the dust. Um, so the lunar dust is, is really fine. It's really sharp. It's caused by um, meteorite impacts to mm-hmm. the moon, and so when the when the meteorite impacts the moon, it breaks up all the all the rocks that are there, and it's really really sharp. So you get sharp sharp jagged edges, as you would expect, right? right. And that yep. would happen on Earth as well. Yep. And then what happens is on Earth, the weather comes along, the wind blows the corners off, the the wet the uh, the rain sort of wears it down, yep. and it becomes nice and smooth and becomes like sand. But on the moon, there is no wind, there's no rain, and so it remains sharp and glassy, and it's just it's and it's it's statically charged. Yep. So it's sticky as well. And so as soon as you send anything up there, it just sticks to it. Yeah. And, um, and it's bad. Like it's bad. Like it's not like smooth stuff that you don't have to worry about. No, this no. is dangerous stuff. It's dangerous yeah. stuff. And it sticks it sticks to anything you send up there. Yeah. Um, it sort of embeds itself. So when you try and wipe it off, it scratches your surfaces. And the astronauts get it inside their lungs. Yep. And it's, yep. you know, there's there's some thought that it's a little bit like asbestosis. Yeah, right. You know, so it's actually really 
a real problem yeah. uh, for for them from an engineering point of view. Like, yeah. we're really and, worried about. And, it. and we, we were we were talking about this in the green room, but uh, probably the only environment on Earth where you see something similar is immediately after volcanic eruptions. That's exactly right. Because yeah. there hasn't been time for those rocks to to um, wear to, to wear out. Yeah, yeah, which is which is a wild thing to think that that's just everywhere on the moon. Yes. And you can't get away from it. So so in terms of the engineering challenge, yep. I mean, making a telescope is, you know, we've been doing that for a while. We're very good at that. You know, we can put them in space. You know, we're really good at that. But what, what sort of things do you have to do in terms of mitigating this, this dust problem in terms of the engineering? Well, there's a couple of things you can do. You can put um, – you can use surfaces. So you can use really um, – like – like surfaces which repel dust, mm-hmm. you know, that the, the dust doesn't actually kind of want to stick to it. Um, another solution that we're that I'm doing research in is to use an ele- electrostatic solution. Okay. So the dust is electrostatically charged. So if we use an electrostatic charge, we could repel it. And so that's the idea. We're trying to create sort of a, a dust, a force field, I guess, yeah. that goes around your object and so it doesn't, the dust can't get there in the first place. Could you set that up in my home? <laughs> I yeah. want to set it up in my home first. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's one of the things we find, especially around electrical material. This is where people will be familiar with this, right? Yeah. Around televisions and stereos and so forth. They just suck the dusk all over them all the time, yeah. right? But for the same, for the exact same reasons, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or the opposite reason in your case. <laughs> yeah, Can I just get a sense of how big this telescope <clears throat> would need to be to collect the data that you want? Like how physically big are we talking? Because presumably that has a big impact on how big a problem the dust is and how effective your mitigation techniques need to be. Yeah. So the, the, um, the telescope itself is going to be 300 metres in diameter. Okay, so we're not talking small. We're not talking small. We're talking pretty big, right? (laughs) A whole crater. It is a whole crater, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to put it inside a crater. Cool. So um, that's that's the idea. That's why we call it the Lunar Crater Telescope. Um, We're actually, um, you know, uh, a crater is sort of a a dish shape, Mm, and a a telescope is a dish shape. So Mm. you know, let's let's exploit that. And so what we're actually going to do is we're actually going to string our telescope inside a crater so we're going to um we're going to send it up in 13 robots or sorry 13 13 landers each with their own robot 12 of them will land around the perimeter of the uh of the crater and what they will do is they will they will uh like a spider they will have a wire that attaches to the lander and they will drive down the side of the crater to the floor drive along get to the centre where they'll connect to the central lander. And using that, we'll have a spoke with four, with uh, with 12, or sorry, a, a wheel with 12 spokes coming off it. Wow. I was going to say, because now I've seen this movie. And <laughs> yeah. You need 13. How many do you actually need? <laughs> <laughs> we might need a bit more. Anyway, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, so that's what's going to happen. And yeah, then when wow. they get to the centre, what they're going to do is they're going to go to that central lander, which has a mesh, and that's where the 300-metre uh, dish is. Right. And they're going to pick up the mesh and they're going to, they're going to actually winch themselves back along, along the cable that they just left behind. They're going to winch themselves back along it and pull that dish out wow. to make... A, a sp- essentially a spider's web. And yeah. does every single one of them have to do, have to get it spot on right for the telescope to work? Like I'm just picturing, what if you've got one that doesn't work and you've kind of got this little dip in your, you know, in your telescope? Yeah. Um, there is a little bit of leeway. You can do it. Um, but you do actually sort of, you want to preserve that par- parabolic mm. shape. Mm. And any, anyone who's sort of done, I think I learned it in year eight, in year eight maths, the, the, uh, the equation when you hang a, 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 a string is not a parabola. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it's a it's a quaternary yeah. or a hyperbolic cosine, and so um, what we're going to do is we're actually going to change the weight 
of the wire along its along its length in order to get that shape. That's wild. Yeah. Now, the, the, there's some there's some serious stuff going on here. I think it's fair to say, in terms of the direction that this telescope will point, is yeah. that completely just one like one direction according to the moon's location and so forth, which you can't actually control like so you just basically need to look into deep space to do these measurements is that, is that right? that's right yeah so i you know i i'm an engineer i want things to be precise and i, mm. I would like to be able to control it a bit yeah. but you know the astronomers assure me that um look you know to look into the cosmic dark ages all we need to do is to look into a dark dark, right. dark spot of the moon oh, sorry dark spot so, of space yeah. so um, we've chosen a crater. We ch- selected our own crater. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> you What's can, it called? You can do that. Oh, it doesn't have a name. Uh, well, surely well, you're we'll going to name it. <laughs> I think, yeah, we'll have to. Um, <laughs> but basically, we're pointing it away from the Milky Way because we don't want yep. we don't want that interference. We want a dark area, and so we've pointed it sort of uh, between uh, 15 degrees and 20 degrees north on the like. If you think about um, latitude and longitude, yep. um, that's that's sort of where we're at. And then we want to be as close to 180 degrees. So that's fu- that's as far away from the Earth as we can. That's wild. Now, when the Dunn Crater is um, Dunn being Crater. built... Uh, <laughs> We're a team. It's got, it's got a, it's got a We're a team. Uh, I like it. Uh, there's no iron team, but there's me. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, but the, the Dunn, Dunn Crater, it's got, it's got a ring to it. We'll just put it out there. The Dunn Team Crater, just to make it feel better. Um, when, when you're putting this together, do you have to assemble this completely and have it operating and so forth here on Earth somewhere out at Swinburne before <laughs> you even attempt to think about launch scenarios? Well, that's that's the next that's the next step. Like we've designed it now yep. and now the next thing we're looking at is actually find building digging ourselves a crater right. and building and building a, a small a small version. Because um, we're going to send these robots up to do the building for us, right? So there's not going to be any humans involved. Yep. Now, a lot of um, space robotics at the moment is teleoperated, so that mm. means that we're actually controlling it from Earth yep. with a bit of delay. When we're on the other side of the moon, we can't get signals there, yeah. mm. right? So they're going to have to be autonomous and we're going to have to test those robots and we're going to have to test them big time. Mm. So um, so what we're doing is, is we're going to build a, a model here so that we can test to see the robots and work out all the bugs before we send it up there. Isn't it cool, Isn't it cool that we now have a space agency in Australia too? I mean, yes. it's kind of, it kind of helps. Yep, helps yeah, a lot. Helps a lot. <laughs> um, have you got a, a launch partner yet or is that far off into the future? No, that's that's, yeah. that's very far yeah. into the future. Well, Michelle, look, it's, it's wild stuff. Um, I think it'd be really cool to have an Australian-grown telescope up there, you know, we, we love our space telescopes, and I think having one on the moon would be very good. Um, I assume there's a whole lot of students involved yes. in the project. This would be a great student engineering project. Yes, we had we had a team. It's, it's a lovely project, actually, because we had a team of six students and four academics. Sorry, five academics, including me. Yep. So um, so it was a real team effort, and the students, they really pulled out all stops. They did an amazing job. Yeah, um, that's where all the so good stuff comes credit, from, isn't it? All credit to the team. Like, seriously, we can't yeah. call it the Dunn Crater. We uh, have to call it. Well, you know, the crater, you call it, you know, the telescope, but anyway, yeah. <laughs> There's heaps of craters up there. We'll find one for you. Uh, Dr. Michelle Dunn from Swindon University, thanks so much for chatting to us today and good luck with this project and it's great to hear from some wonderful women in engineering. Great. Thank you for having me. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. In the studio with us now is Associate Professor Tatiana Kamenova, 
who is from the School of Science, Computing and Engineering Technologies, just like Michelle was, at Swinburne University of Technology. Tatiana, welcome to the studio. Thank you for having me. It is great to have you in there. You work in something, a really cool area of engineering, which is stimulation methods around sort of our bodies, like and how you do that. So I understand a couple of methods you work on. One is um, electrical and the other is optical. Just give us an idea why we would be doing electrical or optical stimulation. Mostly in the current devices, we are using electrical stimulation. For example, with, for participants with depression, mm. we are trying to use small electrodes on the ear in order to stimulate vagus nerve. Right. So, as you know, maybe that a majority of people with depression, they do not respond well to pharmaceutical treatment or to behavioral therapies. For these people, the second line of treatments is electrical stimulation. So, we stimulate vagus nerve non-invasively, mm. putting small electrode on the ear, and at the same time, we record brain activity. Right. The other method of stimulation is optical stimulation, and this is very new, very unique methods of stimulation. We are trying to use nanoparticle-enhanced optical stimulation, and this is for bionic eye application. So, again, current technology, electrical stimulation, but optical stimulation may be the way of the future. Right. Okay. There is a lot to unpack. There. There's some <laughs> cool stuff. So, first of all, the, the vagus nerve, that controls a large amount of our body, right? Am I That's right That's true. That's true. It's just the, la- the largest cranial nerve in the body. It's controlled heart, liver, stomach, so many stuff. But it also innervates in the ear. And that's why it's such a nice location, I guess. We can put it non-invasively, very small electrode, and then this vagus nerve goes into the deep brain areas, into the brain stem. So, therefore, we stimulate brain yeah. directly via vagus nerve. Now, how do you know, uh, given all the things that that nerve does, that you're not interacting with its other functions? That's that's a very good question. So, first of all, the safety of participants is our the priority. So, mm. we go very, very strict ethical protocol so that the benefit outweighs the risk and that we minimize all the risks as well. We place electrodes on the left ear because okay. we know if we place it on the right ear, there may be the vagus nerve that goes there maybe controls the heart rhythm. Wow. We don't want to do that. Yeah. So, we place it on the left ear and we adjust amplitude individually amplitude of stimulation, the strength of stimulation for individual participants as well. And how do you moderate the requirements of an individual versus what you get? So, you know, you you apply a certain voltage. Um, How do you sort of measure what the impact is? We apply uh, amplitude, so we apply strength. Mm -hmm. Once the person starts feeling a small tingling in the ear, we mean, okay, the amplitude is good enough. And then we reduce it to 80% of the amplitude that where the person feeling the tingling in the ear so that the person is comfortable in the scanner. Yeah. And what what sort of results do you see from that? Like what are the the sort of immediate or or immediate or long-term, longer-term results? We looked only on the short-term effects. Mm. So, and we looked at the healthy participants only, even though long-term is participants with depression and we already have ethics protocol approval. So from August, we are starting participants with depression. Now only healthy participants. We see that different parameters of stimulation lead to different activation in different brain areas. And we know this effect because we record at the same time. So at Swinburne, we have a very unique scanner, which is called MEG scanner or magnetoencephalography scanner. There are 
only two scanners like that in the southern hem- hemisphere. One is at Swinburne, so we are mm-hmm. very lucky yep. to have yeah. this scanner. So we can record and stimulate at the same time. So we know what happens in participants' brain as we stimulate. Now, one of the reasons why we, you know, would love to avoid pharmaceuticals in this space is because for many people, the side effects are untenable. Exactly. Uh, are there side effects to these sorts of electrical treatments? We didn't see any side effects in our study. So we collected data from 17 participants and we have not seen any side effects. Mm, interesting. The vagus nerve for me, it just scares me. It does so many different things. Do do you think, uh, is this something that you would do in addition to drug therapies or is it something that you, you would hope would replace them completely? I think ideally it would replace that. And ideally it would be placed only to respond as what we call. Right. Because obviously it is not for everyone, mm. but we hope with the technology and methodology that we are using, it is possible to find this particular group of participants that respond to this treatment. Yeah. And this this is the beauty of non-invasive stimulation. Mm. Well, you can remove electrodes from the ear. Everything is good. Sorry, you are not suited for this yeah, type of yeah. therapy. Yeah, nice. So you've said at the moment you're only working with healthy participants, but I'm interested to know whether those participants have even anecdotally said that they are experiencing any effects from the treatment. I mean, you said that you work out the strength needed based on whether they feel the tingle in their ear, but, you know, do they come out of the treatment saying, oh, I feel this or that, or, you know, how do they reflect on the experience? That is so fun question. So you should have been in a team and asked us this. <laughs> we, we didn't ask them, but we probably should have. We didn't do any questionnaire after that mm-hmm. because our goal is just to look for the brain activity. Mm-hmm. However, with participants with depression that we are studying now, it will be so many uh, questionnaires before and after mm-hmm. this. So we will see the effect on the symptoms. And, and was the, the um, reaction or the response that you saw in the brain, was that very consistent across the different people? Is it, is it absolutely recl- replicable? You know, if we, if we do this, you see that in the brain? We found that there are some areas on the brain that respond to stimulation in all participants, mm-hmm. similar, similar, not in all, but in a similar way. However, the strength of the response is definitely different between different participants. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Mm. I think uh, you got to watch Jen coming up with questions. So, like, she'd ask some things like, "Are you more interested in ice cream now?" <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So you should <laughs> come like, So, how do you feel about this particular piece of music? Or implant that thought before the simulation, then see how they respond after. Yeah, yeah. Don't let Jenny know. That. Um, the, the, so the other thing you're, you're doing, I find it's fascinating, this idea of optically enhanced interactions, especially for the bionic eye. So you're talking about nanoparticles. So this, I assume this is using small particles of metals. Of to, gold. Of gold, yeah. yeah we to, use gold. To achieve, to, what are you trying to achieve there with that optical simulation in, in the gold? So this is just a very, very preliminary result. Mm. So we are trying just to see if nerve cells respond. So when we sprinkle, so and I use the word sprinkle because this is what we do. Yeah. With the syringe, we put gold nanoparticles on a tissue and then we record this neural tissue response and see, do the cells respond in a way that we want to? And we found amazingly they do and we can excite them or inhibit. They basically can bring the activity up or down, which is very, very hard with electrical stimulation. Yeah. And I guess another advantage of optical stimulation is that we can very precisely control a very small area of the tissue as well with electrical stimulation, it's the current spread. You're talking to an optical physics guy, so you, oh, I'm, you I'm, are. I'm sold. But, oh, um, fantastic. But in, ter- in terms of the, so 
can do you see responses from the tissue just normally with optical like with light on them and but you're able to refine that further with the gold nanoparticles? Well, this is the project for people who are legally blind. Right. So this is the eye or yes or cells that do not respond to light okay. at all. So this photoreceptor cells in the retina that are healthy in healthy people, they are gone in people with blindness, with retinitis pigmentosa, age-related macular degeneration. Mm. These cells atrophy. The cells that convert light energy into electrochemical signals, they atrophy. So therefore, we have to find another way to substitute this sense of yeah. vision. And my vague recollection of this is that you, you could have like single gold nanoparticles, so very, very small particles that you could put in specific locations to then control what happens where in which cells. Is that right? This this is the way of the future. We would like to coat gold nanoparticles so they're attached to particular cells in right. the eye. This has been not done before, but we hope we can do it in the future. Yeah, it sounds amazing. Like whenever, whenever I hear people talk about gold and they go, yeah, it's a soft metal, you can't do anything with it, you just make jewellery out of it, it's no good. But this when is it gets small, for it's amazing. Exactly. Yeah, it does, because the enhancement that you get optically is orders of magnitude, right? Exactly. Uh, what it does. It sort of takes, takes the light you had and multiplies by a thousand or more. Exactly. Yeah. And in addition, this, because we are using near infrared light, it does not interfere with any residual vision that the person might have. Wow. That's as amazing. well. So in, in principle, the person have some residual vision, but for high resolution vision, we can use this nanoparticle enhanced near infrared stimulation. It's wild stuff, Tatiana, wild stuff. Now, um, how are things for you at uh, Swinburne? Like we, we just spoke to one of your colleagues and you guys were hugging it out when you first yes, saw each other yeah. in the green room. Um, there, there's not a lot of women in engineering. How, you know, how have you come feel, to it? I feel it's improving. So I'm teaching so medical and regulatory practice. So this mm. is the students who are doing biomedical engineering at Swinburne. Yep. And I find more and more girls are coming to biomedical engineering, which is fantastic to see. It's so, so wonderful. But I still find that there is sometimes a little bit of stigma that engineering is for boys and not for girls. And when I go to schools to give talks, I find that many parents say, oh, no, 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 maths engineering is so hard. It's not for my girl. And I feel so upset about yeah. that. I think, well, it's re- I think you should feel upset about that because it's, well, I'll say it, it's bullshit. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I feel equally upset about it. Yeah. And are there special programs in place at Swinburne to support women in engineering? I mean, yes, there's such exactly. a small number of you. Yes, yeah, yeah. And for example, we have Swinburne SWAN, so Swinburne Women Academic Network. And mm-hmm. this is the network specifically for PhD students, for staff at all year levels, for sessionals, academic professors, doctors, doesn't matter what level you are. But this program basically helps women, academics and students with their career, any questions, any promotions they have, like special events. So this is wonderful. Yeah. Well, look, I have to say, you know, having both you and Michelle on today, you know, a couple of the wildest set of topics that we've had on the show all year. And if that doesn't encourage more, you know, young women to, to get into engineering, I don't know what will beyond the removal of the systematic patriarchal, <laughs> yeah. nasty, shitty environment, um, which we still have, you know, Jen and I are working on that in our spare time. But, um, but thank you so much, Tatiana, for coming in and talking to us because this is really interesting stuff. And I think, as I say, I'm just scared to death of the vagus nerve because it does so many things. Uh-huh. The fact that you're utilizing that in these treatments is phenomenal. So keep up 
up the good work and we hope to hear from you again sometime in the future. Thanks for having me, Shane. Folks, that was Associate Professor Tatiana Kamenaeva uh, from the School of Science, Computing and Engineering Technology at Swinburne University of Technology. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. We have our fourth and final guest in the studio today. It's been a big show, Jen. Oh, what a show. Such great science. And I've got everyone's name right, I think, so far. <laughs> no pressure, no pressure. No pressure. But in the studio with us now is Dr. Erica Tandori, who is a project officer and artist in residence down with Professor Jamie Rostron in his lab there in the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology at, at Monash University. Erica, welcome to Triple R. Oh my God, thank you so much for having me, guys. It's just so exciting to be here, even in the green room. I think it's just meeting the other guests is just amazing. Yeah, well, especially today. mind blowing. <laughs> yeah, it's just fantastic. I so, think you're, you're in a good group today. So, oh, so. wow. I'm just honored to be part oh. of this. That's just great. Well, it's a delight to have you in the studio. Thank um, you. Your, your boss there, Jamie Rostron, mm. and I, you know, he, he messaged me and he was telling me about some of the work. So we, we sort of got a bit excited. And, <laughs> and um, Jim was going to do story this week, but I, you know, just sort of, I invited her so that we can. No, no, this is <laughs> yeah. way more important. Your oh, work wow. is way cooler. Oh, um, wow. Now, first of all, so um, your vision impaired yourself, mm-hmm. so tell us a little bit about that. What What's your current situation? Okay, so let me describe what I can see here for mm. the viewers, oh, the listeners actually. Yep. So what I'm viewing is uh, I can't see you. Yeah, you blend into the background. Um, so I have central vision loss. It's Stargardt's disease. It's mm-hmm. a genetic. Um, and I discovered that as I was transitioning out of Melbourne Uni BA into a BA in painting in from 88 to 89. Right. And then I realized something was going wrong with my eyes. So it's, it's a central vision loss. It's, it's juvenile macular degeneration and it's quite devastating for young mm. people embarking on life. You want to drive, you want to read, you want to party, you want to do everything. And suddenly, yeah. you don't know what's in front of you. So what I can see now, so Shane is sitting with, I think, a dark red background yep. in a dimly lit studio and I can't see Shane mm. at all. Yeah. So I know the direction that you're in. Yep. But what happens is this thing called cortical completion where the background dominates my field of vision and you become the background. Wow. So I did a PhD in this because I think I realized so many people don't understand what central vision loss looks like and who would even ask what does blindness look like? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Who, who would even be so rude as to ask, oh, well, so what do you see and don't see? So people make a lot of assumptions. And in actual fact, it's so fascinating. It is not a black spot at the centre of a visual mm. field. The The peripheral field is very blurry. So I kind of describe it like Monet's vision meets Van Gogh's vision because the other thing that happens is the entire visual field is writhing. So it's a constantly moving feast and the brain interplays so much trying to make sense of the world through impaired, diseased and dead cells at the centre of the macula. It's it's such an incredible description mm. because I think you know as you rightly said in some of the material you sent through to me, mm. there is a there is a version we get from the media yeah. as you described of the mm. black spot in the middle mm. of the vision, and what you've just described is so much more so detailed different. and, and uh, I assume fairly. 
complicated for you to engage with. So it's, um, it's exhausting, Shane. Yeah. It's so exhausting. It's cognitively exhausting and it is constant. You cannot escape it. It's mm. constant. And the things that happen, I mean, that, that book by Oliver Sacks, you know, the man who mistook mm-hmm. his wife it's for a, a hat and book. that, yeah, and, yep. and Bonnet syndrome, uh, forget it. That's happening to me all the time. Yeah, yeah. Because your brain is trying to make sense of the world. So I just remember a day, a windy, warm, sunny day in Sydney, and I'm walking down a street in Glebe and I see this, beautiful little brown puppy running towards me. I thought, oh, my God, isn't it so gorgeous? Mm. And I bend down to pat it, and it's a brown paper bag blowing right. down the street. I mean, the 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 it's yeah. incredible what your brain does. So, and I think I might have described to you how it occurred to me how art can play such a part in describing my antoptic sim- symptoms, like the, yep. the yep. you know, what the disease looks like, um, by watching Mr. Bean's ultimate disaster movie, <laughs> like to see yeah. Whistler's mother's face being right. destroyed in this oil painting and watching the solvent bubbling up and destroying yeah, her yeah. face until it smooshed into this big scotoma of, you know, grey matter, um, was just like, oh my God, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do a PhD on this. Yeah, and no, that's wild. It's yeah. wild. And I think you, your your unique background of mm. uh, understanding a lot of the science behind it, but also uh, your arts background. Mm. Um, and I think you did that at the Victorian Culture of the Arts. I did um, so I many degrees, yeah. Many old friends there, a great place. And I, yes. I encourage all my science colleagues yes. to get their butt down there and talk to yeah, some artists. Yeah, greetings everyone valuable. from the VCA. Exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but now, now you're putting this into play mm. with, um, with Jamie's group down yes. there with regards to enabling people with a variety of, mm-hmm. of sensory yeah. um, limitations yeah. to engage with science. Yeah. Um, tell us about that. Ah, so I finished my PhD and um, uh, um, who's going to employ a blind artist? Mm. Oh. <laughs> and so I was at Vision Australia Employment Services after, you know, my fifth degree um, mm. and with all the work experience and everything I had, but nonetheless... I am just a blind person in the world looking for a job like everyone else. And I, there are so many jobs you can't do, you know, like, yeah. anyway. So, um, yeah, he, he, um, got my, I think Vision Australia sent my, um, CV across to him. Um, and he'd already been employing people with low vision mm-hmm. to work in the lab in admin and things. So, yeah, so he, he basically said, well, let's put an exhibition together. So I came in as a casual. But you know what really struck me was when I got to his lab and I started to put this exhibition together with him and the scientists, I thought, my God, am I back at the VCA? Right. <laughs> Is this the sculpture department? Yeah. Because they were all like playing with what they call blobology. So they were looking at blobs of like protein sculptures, you know, made of 3D, which, you know, most of us would think was a bunch of frozen peas sort of smooshed together. (laughs) Um, But the importance of structure in biology, in, in explaining and understanding concepts of science and interactions at a biological level, you know, in, in microbiology was just like, oh, whoa, this is so astonishing. And then when I started to see the images, like on the internet, you know, a dendritic cell, and just, oh, it's so beautiful. Mm. Just, and it, bizarrely, there's almost an aesthetic 
language around all this. So when you look at the goody cells, like the immune yep. cells, they're all beautiful. <laughs> and then when you look at the nasty pasty viruses, they're all like <laughs> spiky and, and like, you know, confronting and aggro, like little, little punks sort of, yeah. you know, in, in, you know, roaming the immune system. I, I, I think it's amazing you're doing this. I mean, <laughs> NASA have yeah. been turning their images yes. into sonification. So yeah. for people who haven't seen that, um, or, you know, listen to it. Mm-hmm. You know, you can go onto the NASA website where mm-hmm. they have beautiful images from Hubble and yep. James Webb and so forth. Yep. And some of those images have been converted into sonic patterns. Yes. And yep. you listen, you listen to them left to right and they're just extraordinary. They're extraordinary. Yeah. And this is similar, you know, this is the sort of thing you're, you're doing. I mean, we're, we're only got a couple of minutes left, but, mm-hmm. um, but you're, you're turning many of these lab experiences that some of us who can experience that through our sight and so forth, mm-hmm. um, for others, they can't do that. Mm-hmm. And you're turning that into other types of experiences? Yeah, so I work with Dr. Stu Favilla. Um, he's also my partner, so mm-hmm. <laughs> conflict yep. of interest there. <laughs> and, um, and so Stu makes the most beautiful, amazing sonifications of, of protein data and things, and the, it's extraordinary how anyone can actually understand better and, and, and use this technique mm. to access large volumes of data sets and and understand the patterns in them it's just incredible so we are working in a multi-sensory way to describe concepts of of um, microbiology yeah i think it's wild now where can Mm. people can people go along and engage with these exhibits we yeah they can so we just had um the large um Monash Sensory Science Autoimmunity Exhibition. We had that on Friday. Um, we just got the National Science Week grant and we're going to have an exhibition for um, kids with vision impairments, blindness, low vision and other diverse needs at um, Statewide Vision Resources in in, in Melbourne, which is um, like the peak body of... Um, you know, yep. for for kids with impairments, and you know, teachers can come to that as well. So that's going to be in Melbourne, I think, on the Friday the eighteenth. But that's a closed thing. But we're going to Sydney, so we're going to take cool. a Monash Sensory Science van to Sydney, and we are going to go exhibiting um, at the Australian Hearing Hub at Macquarie University on Tuesday the fifteenth of August, and that's going to be an afternoon. I think exhibition. it's a road trip needed, Shane. Might, I want to yeah, go. Yeah, yeah, we might need a Einstein to go go official road trip. Yeah, um, wouldn't that be gorgeous? I'm not sure we've had one of those before. We, we could do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it just sounds uh, amazing. I just want to. Yeah. I just want to experience it. Yeah. yeah. Well, Erica, yeah. It, it has been an absolute delight having you on the show, and I think. Um, uh, just hearing your description of mm. your site for mm. me is just so, um, you know, I- incredibly valuable. Uh, mm. Given the version that we all we all That's right. us, without vision impairment yeah. see, yeah. which is the black dot in the middle of the screen, That's which right. is which is unhelpful. Yeah, doesn't describe what it's like. Yeah. And hearing your beautiful description of that, I think a mm. lot of people will will take to heart and have a, a much better understanding of, of, you know, what this is like mm. and and how to engage with you and, mm. and, and you know, what you're interacting with in your environment. So mm. thank you so much for coming in. We really appreciate it. It's been such a pleasure. It's thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Folks, it was Dr. Erica Tandori, who is an artist in residence down in the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology at Monash University and doing some amazing things. 
Jen, I'm sorry. We we were going to talk about the earth being on fire, but we, no, we got no, carried think, away by other things. I, I think we've had four such extraordinarily inspiring guests today where you can talk news in this studio anytime. We don't always yep. get the opportunity to talk with such incredible women in science. What an honour. Yep, 100%. And I think uh, coming up, we will have more of our engineers um, mm-hmm. coming in in the coming months. And I've also indicated to the museum that I would like to hear a lot more about their collections. So, <laughs> so you'll uh, finally go and look at the dinosaur. Yeah, Come I'll on, get there get at some stage. Together. You know, I'm a bit slow on these things, but, you know, it's, uh, I'm, uh, I'm a busy guy. You know, I spend a lot of time on the show. Anyway, folks, uh, thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Gago. Dr. Jen, thanks so much for coming in. Good thank to see you, you, as always. Huge thank you to all of our guests today and to everyone listening thanks so much for tuning in to Einstein the Go-Go. Remember science is everywhere have a wonderful Sunday and we'll chat to you again next week. Hi, this is Dr Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein the Go-Go a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.